from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. Hey, everybody. Thanks for being with us today. We're happy to be with you. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for sending in your questions. Very grateful to everybody. We sure are. Wendy's picked some good ones, as she always does. I don't know what they are, as I never do, but I know they're going to be good ones because you always pick good ones, Wendy. Thanks. I wanted to share something with our listeners. I think a lot of them are aware that we live in sort of a rural area or a very rural area, and we aren't farmers ourselves, but there are many, many farms around us. The other day I was just driving in our area and looking at a barn that I remember seeing it being built, and it, I was just mm. admiring it from a distance. And Was it an Amish farm? It was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just thinking about kind of the wonder of the interior of a barn when you go inside and, and the kind of delight of checking out a barn. And I thought, you know, Christopher taught me to love barns. I didn't grow up with any particular affection for barns, but I've gained it from you. And I I thought our listeners, if you would be willing to share something you love about barns, what what that's about, that might be fun for them to hear. Well, if you could see my home office right now, where Wendy and I are recording, Uh you would see that the whole thing has been built with barn wood, old barn beams, hand-hewn barn beams, some of them 200 years old, 300 years old, uh, barn boards on the ceiling. I, I wish I could understand myself about why I've – ever since I was a little kid, I remember jumping in, in hay in a barn when I was a kid mm-hmm. and just loving the smell, the feel. Yeah. The freedom, the safety of jumping from a high place into a big soft – pile of hay, but there was also something very attractive to me about the old wooden ladder that I had to climb to get up to this other level of the barn where I'd jump off from the loft down into this hay pile. And, you know, we live in a 200-year-old cabin and the the beams, the wood, the like who cut down these trees? Mm. Uh, and these trees that were cut down 200 years ago to build our home, they must have been could have been two to 300 years old when they were cut down. So, you know, these trees that make up our home were growing when Christopher Columbus Mm. came to America from Europe. Uh, Native Americans lived around these trees, like hunted in the forest Mm -hmm. where these trees grew and somebody cut them down and, and the evidence of their handy work with their axe is still evident in all the marks of these beams. I don't know, it sings to me. And one time I I did have this insight that there is something about trees that, surprise, surprise, is biblical. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, right in the first pages of Genesis, we read about all these trees that God planted that were a delight to look at. Mm. And... Then, of course, there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is part of our tragic story of the fall. And then there's the tree of life, uh, which we never ate from in the garden. But then there's the, the tree of life that is the cross that redeems it all. Um, 
I think there's there's something mysterious and mystical to me about my attraction to trees and old wood. I don't know. It's and and the point of sharing all this is not to put the focus on me and what I love, but but to give an example of how how the Lord can use the things we love really to minister to our hearts in deep ways. Trees are so sacramental to me. Um, I've, they have been such a, a way that God has wooed my heart, and I want to encourage everybody out there to to let the Lord woo your heart. A few weeks ago, we had um, brunch, Sunday brunch, with a, a family that we didn't know until that day. There, our kids go to co-op together, and we thought it would be nice for the parents to get to, together, which we did. <clears throat> and this guy took us into his garage, which had been converted the whole like a large size two bay garage had been completely converted into shelves containing action figures that i i, I mean hundred like literally hundreds and hundreds mm-hmm. of action figures and this guy's in his 40s and he 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 loves action figures and i was so inspired by his childlike wonder that he retained into his 40s. Like, I played with action figures, little Star Wars action figures when I was a kid in the 70s. Uh, I, you know, I, I didn't exactly carry that with me into my adulthood. And, but I, I was like, wow, this is a window into this guy's heart. Like, uh, Wendy and I would just encourage all of you, what are the windows into your heart? Yeah. Pay attention to those things. It can not only be the way the Lord ministers to you, but it can also be a way of getting to know someone. Like, Wendy, you've come to love old wood through me because you've known it to be a window to my heart. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, there there are windows to your heart that I never would have appreciated uh, that have helped me to know you. Like, um, I was about to say Austin Powers, but that is like not at all. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Jane Austen. Jane Austen. <laughs> Couldn't be more different. <laughs> Not Austin Powers. It's J- Jane Austen. I never would have been drawn to Jane Austen on my own. Right. Um, but you have opened a world for me that has been a great blessing in my life. And it's been a great blessing to get to know your heart through right. your love of Jane Austen. How many times have we watched the BBC Pride and Prejudice? I don't know. Quite a few. Quite a few. It's good. <laughs> yeah. Come on, guys. Don't be afraid. If your <laughs> wife wants to watch BBC's Pride and Prejudice, be not afraid. <laughs> There's much to learn there. Much more than you'd ever learn from Austin Powers, I assure you. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, with that said, would you update us about the Theology of the Body yes, Institute? Yes, I would. We have uh, two pilgrimages to promote in 2024. One is already set in stone, and the other is still in the planning phases. Uh, we'll, we'll have more to tell you about that in a little bit, but let me just tell you right now, Way of Wonder is a UK pilgrimage with Bill Dunahy, my esteemed colleague, and Father Kevin Fox, and Mike Mangione, our resident artist and musician, will also be participating in that. It's going to be exploring C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, Chesterton, and Catholic England. And I'm looking at the flyer right now, and I'm seeing 
all kinds of gorgeous pictures of the countryside in England with a country church, and I'm seeing uh, old Catholic buildings in London, and I'm seeing, oh, it looks like they're going to Stonehenge as well. Uh, Bill Dunahy just recently taught for the very first time for the Institute his course on the writings of Lewis and Tolkien, which was a smash hit, and this is kind of a continuation along those lines. So, very exciting. It's July 16th to the 25th, 2024. And the other pilgrimage, we don't have all the details yet, but it's going to be in September, and it's going to be a pilgrimage to Rome that I will be leading, and more details will be forthcoming on that. But you can already click the link in the show notes to learn more about this Way of Wonder UK pilgrimage. And I do want to say before we get to our first question, again, uh, There's more of a background on this in our previous episode. If you didn't listen to that, please do. But we need to raise funds for people who are are desiring a reversal of a tubal ligation or a vasectomy. Uh, I put out an offer on Matt Frad's Pints with Aquinas YouTube show a few weeks ago, and we've had an overwhelming response of people who need funds. I said, hey, don't let money ever get in the way of getting a reversal. If you want a reversal, write to me and and I'll do what I can to help find the money if that's the only obstacle. Well, we were overwhelmed with responses and we need to rely on on people like you who would want to help a couple to get a sterilization reversed. So click the link below uh, for donations. And when you donate, please, when it says, what is this for? Uh, please put in reversals, and we we will know that 100% of that donation goes directly to that cause. Thank you so much for helping us help these couples who are really wanting to live out the faith and uh, regret what they've done, and we can all put our money where our mouth is and and help them out. Awesome. Yeah, and thanks you, thanks, thanks you, thank you to everybody who's already donated, uh, but we still have a, a ways to go to raise the the funds we need. So thanks everybody. Are you ready for a question? Yes. This is from a patron named Kelsey. Hello, Kelsey. Thank you. Thank you for your monthly support of our mission. So grateful to you. Kelsey says, thank you very much for your podcast. I listen every week. I have a question for you regarding death. In the catechism, it talks about the resurrection of the body, which we also affirm when we recite the creed at Mass. The resurrection of bodies will happen at the end of the world, at the time of the final judgment. But until then, one's soul and body is separated at one's death and will remain separated until the final judgment, end of the world, if I'm understanding this right. Yeah, let me just pause and say, yes, you're understanding that correctly. So if a person's soul goes to heaven after dying today, but their glorified body will not join them there until the end of the world, will heaven be less spectacular until that day when all the souls get reunited with their bodies in heaven? I just wonder about this, as well as how the final judgment will change the status of people already in heaven or in hell. Any insight would be helpful. Yeah, I love this question. It's a question I have pondered at length. And I'm going to draw here from Thomas Aquinas, who I I think this is so important that we understand this because oftentimes we have not only an unchristian vision of heaven, but but an anti-Christian vision of heaven, uh, because we've 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 assumed a Platonic view of heaven to be a Christian one. And what do I mean by Platonic? The philosopher Plato 
was the one who believed that at death, the soul is finally liberated from the prison of the body. This is not only unchristian, this is anti-Christian. And I, I use the word anti-Christian because such a belief attacks our faith at its deepest foundations. Because the deepest foundation of the Christian faith is Christ. Uh, duh, uh, sounds silly to say, but but why does it bear repeating? Because we we have even excarnated Jesus often in our thinking. Mm -hmm. We have the spiritual idea of Jesus and we forget that he took flesh. Jesus Christ is the word made flesh, the word, the second person of the Trinity. The word is the, is what we say in English to translate the Greek word logos. The logos was made flesh. I, I think if we can enter into that word logos, it gives us a richer understanding than the word word. Uh, not that the word word is the wrong word, uh, a lot of words there, um, but logos is, is richer. The logos means the, the logic behind everything, the meaning behind everything, the ultimate purpose of everything, the beauty behind everything, the wonder behind everything, the logos, the, 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 the ultimate meaning of everything took on flesh to reveal in human flesh, the ultimate meaning of everything. And the ultimate meaning of everything is that everything would be taken up into the life of the Trinity, including the whole of physical creation and the human body especially. Uh, distinctions need to be made here. It's not like um, a tree is going to participate in the life of the Trinity in the same way that a human being is, nor a squirrel or a, a chipmunk or a dog or a giraffe. But... Again, we have forgotten our own faith. All of creation, St. Paul says, Romans chapter 8, all of creation, the rocks, the trees, the birds, the squirrels, the giraffes, the dogs, uh, everything, all of creation is groaning in labor pains, like a woman in labor, waiting for us the human, the human person who is the crown of creation, why are they waiting for us? Because the rest of creation goes the way that we go. Uh, this is the inner relationship between humanity and all of creation. All of creation is groaning, waiting for us to say yes to what? The redemption of our bodies. What does that mean in the full sense of the word? It means all of creation, all of physical cre creation is destined to be transubstantiated. What do I mean by that? Okay, what happens to the bread and the wine at a mass? What is it? What happens to it? It becomes, it becomes divinized. It becomes Christ. All of creation is in some way, distinctions need to be made here. So that's why I say in some way. All of creation is destined to be transubstantiated, divinized, taken up into the divine life. Uh, until that happens, St. Thomas Aquinas, this is, all of that was to loop back to St. Right. Thomas Aquinas, <laughs> who says, the human souls in heaven right now are in an inhuman state until the end of time, until there will be a new heavens and a new earth earth, 
which will include the resurrection of our bodies. We await a glorified body. Uh, So yes, there is something lacking in heaven now. They are in an inhuman state. Uh, There is a certain participation, a certain participation, which is beautiful and blissful uh, of the human soul in in the vision of God and and all things otherworldly, but it's not going to come to completion, so therefore something is lacking until the end of time. Uh, It's hard to talk about these things within time because the heavenly reality is outside of time. Um, So we get a little tripped up there and it's really hard to put human language to all this. But you are right to say, to ask these questions like, is there something different? Yeah. Is there something lacking? Yeah. Uh, What is lacking? The, The new earth, the new heavens and the new earth, including our resurrected body. Is that lack felt as something painful? I don't think we can say that. I don't think it's felt as something painful. Um, I think it's felt as something anticipatory with excitement and and joy. Um, I don't think it's experienced as something painful. There was something else. There was another part of the question that I'm not sure I'm getting to. Can you revisit? First of all, can I just say that yeah. was really good. Oh, good. Really good. Um, and I, I like especially how you acknowledged that the, there is a difference between heaven experienced uh, before the second coming, before the redemption of all things. It's heavenly, but it's not the ultimate reality. But yeah, that's that's awesome. And that was what she was getting at. And then she also asked, um, how will the final judgment change the status of people already in heaven or in hell? Yeah, I'm not sure what she means by status. Um, I'm not either. If she means like placement in heaven, that would be a another conversation, I think. But you know, who's at the right hand and all that stuff? You know, Jesus says that's reserved for the yeah, Father. I, I think I what I'm getting is like, does anybody leave hell and come to heaven at the oh, end okay. of time? No, no. If you are in hell, you are in hell. There's there's no way out of that one. Um, but but how how are we changed if we could make, it's that word status that is tripping me up a little mm-hmm. bit but how are we changed um i don't know exactly because i've obviously never experienced it but i can say what we proclaim by faith um we 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 what is raised excuse me what is sown an earthly body is raised a heavenly body a spiritual body this is the language that saint paul uses what is sown an earthly body is raised a spiritual body or a heavenly body. Um, that does not mean, when we say spiritual body, that does not mean non-physical, right? The fact that we find it an oxymoron to say spiritual body is an indication that we've bought into that, the more ancient error would be platonic, uh, but the more modern day error we would call a Cartesian rupture of body and soul. Uh, from Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. He posited human identity in thought. The body becomes something we think about and dissect, but we no longer identify with. This is not only unchristian; it is anti-Christian. The very fact that we can't hold those two words together, spiritual body, shows that we're, we're, we've been so immersed in this Cartesian rupture. Spiritual body for St. Paul is not an oxymoron. It's an integration of the spiritual and the physical. 
And this is what our faith is at its very essence. You know, where religion in a kind of generic sense is, is understood as man's flight from the physical world to reach the spiritual God. Christianity represents the exact opposite movement, which is the spiritual God entering this physical world to reach us. And guess what? He doesn't leave the physical world behind when he returns to heaven. This is what is essentially Christian. This is what is different from any other religious faith in the world. A bodily participation in the afterlife. And so the catechism says the most controversial teaching of Christianity is the resurrection of the body. The catechism goes on to say, uh, you know, all kinds of religious uh, systems of thought believe in, in an afterlife, but it's a spiritual afterlife. How can we believe, the catechism says, that this body so clearly mortal could rise to everlasting life? We believe it because Christ's body has risen to everlasting life. And the resurrection, of course, is fulfilled in the ascension. He took his body with him the whole way into heavenly glory. And we believe that right now there is a male and a female body, the new Adam, the new Eve, Christ and Mary, participating in the eternal ecstasy and bliss of the Trinity. And this is the destiny of every body. Glory be to the word made flesh in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, now and ever and forever. Amen. That's, I could say much more, but I think we should leave it there. <laughs> I know, because she's asking questions about kind of this whole portion of theology, the body and yeah, yeah. of the Catholic faith. So, yeah, you can go all kinds, all kinds of, of directions. And it's, it's important because people don't even realize they're absorbing misconceptions yeah, yeah, about it. Yeah. So, I like the way you're kind of just pointing out, wait, where does that idea come from? Where does that idea come from? So, she's, she's recognizing it here. This is in the catechism. This is in our creed. What does that mean? Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah, I, I love, love it too. That's great. I remember when I was just coming back to my faith in my early 20s, I really had this, con I went to however many years of Catholic school, and this whole idea of resurrection of the body never, ever sank in. And, and I had a very dualistic understanding of, of body and soul until I encountered JP2's theology of the body. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so we just have to be very aware of it. And I remember talking to a priest who, who was giving a homily on the afterlife really disincarnated it and didn't say anything about the role of the body. And I, he was a friend of mine, so I could challenge him afterwards. I said, Father, you didn't, uh, you didn't even mention the resurrection of the body. And his response was so painful. He said, he said well, yeah, I don't really know how to talk about that because we, we never learned anything about it in the seminary. And I thought, you never learned anything about the very essence of our hope held out to us by the Catholic faith and by Jesus Christ himself. You never learned anything about it in the seminary. Good God have mercy. Mm. This is the state of affairs. Mm. I mean, he was very humble in, in saying that, but oh my gosh, yeah. this is our faith. Resurrection of the body is what we proclaim to the world. St. Paul says, if the resurrection of the body is not real, our faith is in vain. Mm. 
In other words, there is no Christian faith other than faith in the resurrection of the body. And when we understand what, what that encompasses and what that means, it's not just one little aspect of our faith. It encompasses the whole of our faith. The whole of our faith is contained in what we mean when we say the resurrection of the body. Mm. And wow. Yeah, we got a lot of work to do. There's a crisis of Catholic education here. That's why the new evangelization is aimed first and foremost at people in the pews. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ready for our next question? Yes. All right. This is from a listener named John. Hi, John. Christopher, I've heard you define anesthetized as being numb to beauty. I think out of self-protection, I have anesthetized myself to many things. I love music and movies, but never enter into the deeper emotional realities of the art. I don't know how. Do you have any practical advice on how to begin to experience these things differently? Mm. Wow, John. God bless you, brother. Uh, let me, just for those who may not be aware of that, the etymology of the word anesthetic, right, or to anesthetize, it, in the middle of the word, you see the, the word esthete, right? And when we say someone has an aesthetic sensibility, it means a sensitivity to beauty, which means anesthesia is numbness to beauty. Um, we all have a certain numbness to beauty. And, and I think you, 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 you almost need that to a certain degree to, to get through a day and function. Because if we were always, I mean, beauty is everywhere. Mm. And it's a certain mercy that we don't see all of it all the time. Because if we did, we'd be bleeding interiorly. Uh, I don't mean that in the literal sense, but a spiritual bleeding, our hearts would be bleeding and we'd be weeping at every turn. And there, there are some saints who, who gain such a sensitivity to beauty that they did weep almost continuously. Mm. I've heard stories of St. Ignatius of Loyola Who's, who wept so continually because he was so struck by, by the beauty all around him and the beauty of the human person and the suffering of the human person. And, and those two go together. To be sensitive to the beauty of things is to be sensitive to the sorrow of things. Um, they go together. Uh, but anyway, St. Ignatius' spiritual director, so the story goes, like ordered him to stop crying because... He, he, he was going to go blind, the, his spiritual director thought. So it's a certain mercy that we don't feel the intensity of beauty all the time. So I would say just be at peace with that. Um, but also, let's take seriously, what is Jesus getting at, for example, when he says, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang the dirge, but you didn't mourn. What Jesus is lamenting there is what he calls elsewhere hardness of heart, right? And, and I, I don't want to confuse 
what I was just explaining there about a, a, a normal sensitivity to beauty that you can't be, you can't have like a raw nerve exposed to it all the time or you wouldn't be able to get through your day. Um, that is not hardness of heart in of itself. That's, that's normal human day-to-day -day reality. But we do need to be wary and we do need to just ask the Lord, Lord, where have I hardened my heart? And I can tell you in my own life, as one who, who has tried with the Lord's help and through years of spiritual direction and with your help, Wendy, to really look at my life, uh, look at roots of sin patterns in my life, look at roots of dysfunctional relating in my life, look at the roots of pain I've caused you, Wendy, pain I've caused our children, uh, pain I've caused others. Uh, as I've gone on that journey, I have discovered a certain hardening of my heart that was a, a defense mechanism because of pain. Because uh, I didn't know that there was another way to deal with pain. Mm -hmm. And and as I've journaled this out, even recently I came up with this kind of shorthand for myself. I call it my own PPPM, which is my personal program of pain management. Did I, I think I talked about this on a recent episode. I'm not sure. You may have. I may have. I can't remember. Um, and my PPPM, my personal program of pain management, uh, needs to be contrasted and, and converted to and by Christ's PPPM, which is his Paschal program of pain management, which is not to stuff the pain, which is not to react with anger to the pain, which, man, I've, that's how I've trained myself, to react to my pain with anger. You don't know anything about that, Wendy, but I'll explain it to you later. Okay. Um, that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, to manage my pain with anger is, I, have, I, am, I am slowly learning another way, which is to open my pain to Jesus and feel it with him and offer it to the Father. Doing all of that makes you sensitive, not just to the suffering, your own suffering, the suffering of others. It also makes you sensitive to the beauty of the world, to the beauty of music. I've had these experiences of hearing a song that I've already heard a thousand times, and all of a sudden I'm hearing it for the thousand and first time, and tears are streaming down my face. Uh, I remember this one time with you, Wendy, in the car, this U2 song that I had heard countless times. And you, I was driving and you looked over at me and there were tears just going down my cheek. And you said, what's wrong? And I could barely breathe. It's just mm. the beauty of the notes mm -hmm. of this guitar. Um, there have been times where I've, I've been hardened to a certain movie or TV show. Like just the other night, uh, Wendy and I finished watching... Dr. Shivago mm -hmm. on uh, our BritBox subscription yeah. that we have. And there are things about the story I didn't like right from the start. It was like there was this adulterous relationship that I thought was being kind of portrayed in some sentimental manner or wanted us, wanted the viewer to be sympathetic to it. And it just pissed me off. So I <laughs> shut down my heart. I was like, you piss me off. I'm not, I'm not getting sucked into your romanticizing adultery. Um, and I realized 
I had closed my heart off to other aspects of the story. And I asked you at the end of the final episode what you had gotten out of the episode or the story. And you shared some thoughts with me, Wendy, that I've really been carrying with me the last few days. Like, wow, I was hardened to that. I, I shut myself down. I, I wasn't open to it. Mm. Um, I didn't see it. And because I shut myself down, I didn't see it. Uh, but there's a, there is also a suffering in there that I didn't want to feel. And you felt it, Wendy, and you shared it with me, and it helped open my heart. Wow. Yeah, I've come back to that several times over the last few days. Hmm. So all this to say to my dear brother, John, um, who's asking this, this very worthy question, I would invite you, brother, to take whatever you're considering your own maybe intentional anesthetizing and say, Lord... Teach me your way of dealing with pain because almost inevitably we anesthetize ourselves because we don't want to feel the pain. But with the same stroke, because sorrow and joy, agony and ecstasy are two sides of the same coin, when we, when we truncate or shut down our capacity for sorrow, we are also shut down, shutting down or narrowing or restricting our, our capacity for real joy in the beauty of things, in the goodness of things. So my encouragement to you, brother, this has been my journey. Ask the Lord to teach you his Paschal program of pain mm. management. And I'm utterly convinced it will open you more and more Yes, to the sorrowful mystery of Christ's agony, but also to the glorious mystery of his ecstasy. And I'll close my thoughts, and then I'm really interested to hear whatever you have to say, Wendy. Hmm. Um, this was a, a game changer for me years ago when I was processing a lot of pain. And I had a name for it for the first time from this retreat director that I go to, he, he said, Christopher, you're, you're learning through your own experience what the church's tradition calls the prayer of agony. And the prayer of agony is when we are united with Christ in his cry, my God, my God, why, 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 why have you abandoned me? And that can come out in some really brutal, ugly ways, painful ways. Uh, you don't have to go looking for the prayer of agony. It'll come to you. It's mm -hmm. just what life dishes out. Um, but to know that it's a prayer and it's, it, you know, we, we read in scripture that Christ cried out to the father with loud cries and groans, uh, in his sorrow and in his suffering. And he learned this way of suffering. Uh, we ha we have to walk that way with Jesus. It's not optional between here and the beatific vision. We must learn the prayer of agony, but here's the takeaway. What I learned from my retreat master, and this is a kind of a paraphrase of the teaching of Teresa of Avila. The Lord teaches us courage in the prayer of agony. Get this. Because we need even more courage to endure the prayer of ecstasy. What kind of ecstasy is held out to us if the prayer of agony is the training ground where our hearts gain the capacity, whoo, whoo, gain the capacity to enter the ecstasy.
And there's no way, I was about to say no way in hell, but that doesn't make any sense in this context. There's no way in heaven that Mother Teresa, who lived for nearly 50 years in, in, in an ongoing prayer of agony, thank you God that this is not the normal path to heaven, but Mother Teresa, for whatever God's reasons we can't understand, with one or two reprieves in a 50-year span experienced with only one or two reprieves, a constant ongoing prayer of agony. Do you think now in heaven, with the ecstasy that Mother Teresa was prepared for through that agony, do you think she's looking back in her life and saying, why did I say yes to Jesus? I don't think so. Hmm. She's living experientially what St. Paul said, I consider, compared to the glory that awaits us, I consider our sufferings as nothing. As nothing. Oh, Lord, help me. Help me. Help me. I whine so much about my sufferings. Help me, Lord. Help yes, me, Lord, to me embrace too. them. I, I just have a couple thoughts for John. I, I, you know, he had a very short question as I'm looking at my printed questions. You know, his only took three and a half lines on my paper. Um, and yet it contained a lot of little hints of important things. And one of the hints was when he said, out of self-protection. Mm, mm. And I think that maybe is, you know, what inspired you to yeah. share those pr- yeah. really important things about pain management. Yeah, like, that, thank you for reminding me mm-hmm. that that was what it was. Yeah. yeah. And I I think part of, you know, I also appreciated how you said there's there's a certain mercy in not experiencing all the beauty all the time. But I think we all need to be aware, made aware, reminded that we are journeying through life with our best friend who's always with us. Like, mm-hmm. I'm always with you is a amazing gift, the Lord. It's like the most important gift as far as I'm yeah, concerned. I will never leave you. Yes. I will never forsake you. Yes. And, and so if we have that companion with us who could help us to understand just in gradual ways how we don't need to protect ourselves as much as we thought because he's there with us. In everything, Jesus, Jesus, you're with yeah. us in everything. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, I think that that, that companion of the strength and the truth and the, the true seeing of the Lord, seeing us and seeing reality as it truly is, is, is that companionship we need on this journey. And when we are experiencing something, a little, a little sign that something's not right in the background, you know, like that, that numbness, that's a sign what's not right in the background. Mm. Why, why can't I really enter into these things even though I'm attracted to them? what what's what's missing it's a little it's a, it's like an alert to you and and you need to look to your companion the lord and and just ask him like sh- protect me so that i can experience these things safely i need your protection cuz i've been trying to protect myself and it's cutting me off from something i know i i'm meant to experience and mm. and it's going to make me fo- more fully alive but 
I would not expect it to happen in an all at once kind Mm-mm. of way. Mm-mm. I think that was partly also what you were acknowledging yeah. the journey that that the Lord can begin slowly to open that door. In fact, I found myself wondering as you were sharing whether since writing and submitting this question, whether John has already started experiencing mm. little notes of sensitivity in his being that weren't there before, that that he's perceiving more just by the very fact of having opened his heart up by asking yeah. this question. I I think, you know, sometimes we we overhear someone else's experience of something and we feel cut out from it. How come I don't experience that? And if we can kind of let go of that, why me, what, you know, kind of concern and just allow that other person mm. to kind of have access to us by sharing, that is a part of the way that the Lord can increase our sensitivity is by listening to someone else. I think your students often experience that in class with you, you mm-hmm. know, that as you open up things that have touched your heart, they experience like a being drawn into their own openness yeah. somehow. So yeah. there are people in John's life, you know, that he will encounter that are experiencing something that he's longing for. And if he can allow that to be a little doorway, yeah, that's a beautiful gift. Yeah, that door, I love you said, a little doorway. That's exactly what I was thinking. It's like a portal where something opens up and you walk through it like the wardrobe into Narnia Mm. or or I'm thinking of a lyric from a U2 song. uh, Touch me, take me to the other place. You got to teach me, Lord. I know I'm not a hopeless case. There's, there's. Or, or Bonnie, you were just sharing this line from a U2 song recently with oh, me. Yeah. Let me in the sound. Let me, let in, me the in, sound. in the sound. Let me in the sound, sound. Let me in the sound. Yeah. Uh, like, let me in. Like, knock and the door will be open to you. And John is already knocking. Uh, and he's, sorry, but he's knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door here. Um, and it's it's a beautiful, a beautiful knocking. John, the fact that you, you said, I already, I love music and I love movies. One of the greatest treats for my heart has been the Lord taking me back to songs or movies that I've always loved and then opening that portal to the deeper reality that I was always attracted to, even if I didn't know it, but it was right. always there. John, it's there. You're already attracted to it. The Lord will open these doors, and as he opens them, walk through them. Be not afraid. Bless you, brother. Hope that's helpful. Our next question is from an anonymous listener. Hi, and thank you for your inspiring podcast. I am a Protestant woman in my late 20s, and I've always been single. Since I was little, I've not been sure if I want to marry or live alone. However, one of my big fears is to have children. Mm -hmm. So that made me think maybe I am supposed to live alone and not marry if I don't want children. It feels like all I want to do is keep studying art Mm. and not have a family. Mm. But something in me wonders if maybe it's selfish to pursue an art career instead of marrying and having a family. Do you have any thoughts? How can I find out if I'm called to live alone? And if that is the case, what then is the purpose for me as a woman if I don't have children? 
I think there has to be a purpose, but I don't know what it is. Mm. As a Protestant, I've heard a lot of teachings about the importance of marriage and family, but I've never heard teachings on the vocation of a single life before I began to listen to Catholic teachings a year ago. Something resonated in me. Mm. I wonder how to know if my desire to live a single life is my calling. Well, wow, there's a lot of richness in just her reflection there. Um, I could go in various directions here, and I don't know that I can cover all the bases, but here are a few things that stand out to me. Um, I would, I would invite you to present to the Lord, however you're comfortable doing that. I don't know if you keep a prayer journal or maybe you could write a letter to Jesus. Just talk to Jesus about why you don't want to have children or where, where, where is that coming from? What is the sentiment around it? Um, is it rooted in certain fears, insecurities, did you have a painful relationship with your mom? Are you afraid that you wouldn't be a good mom? What, what, whatever it is, I would just invite you to write that out in a letter to Jesus. And, and as you're writing it out, or after you've written it out, or as, as or after, or both, say, Lord, speak to my heart. Speak to my heart. Quiet your heart as, as much as you're able and, and listen. And maybe some memories would come. If memories come to you of your own childhood, when you're in that place of prayerfully listening, I would pay attention to that. It's a good chance that it's the Lord bringing it to your attention. Um, maybe a song come in, comes into your mind or your heart. And maybe that song is connected to a certain memory, or maybe there's certain lyrics in that song that might speak to a certain situation the Lord wants to bring to your attention. Maybe a scene from a movie that you've loved, or a movie you haven't loved, but a scene stuck in, in your mind, maybe that comes to mind. These are ways, not the only ways, but these are ways that the Lord speaks to our hearts. He speaks the language of our hearts, and art is the language of our heart, which brings up another thing I want to address. I think it could be possible, it could be possible that you have a calling to devote yourself to the arts. And I would say, you, the part of your question was, if I were to live a single life as an artist, what would that look like? Uh, what would my womanhood mean in that context? Well, here's, I think, a beautiful insight of Catholic theology. It's, it's right out of Scripture, as all Catholic theology is rooted in Scripture. Um, there is another way to live out one's manhood or womanhood. And here's how I express it. Every man, by virtue of being a man, is called in one way or another to be a husband and a father. And every woman, by virtue of being a woman is called in one way or another to be a wife and a mother. John Paul II calls this the law of ecstasy. And by that he means going out of yourself. That's what ecstasy means, to go out of yourself. He also calls it the law of the gift, to go out of yourself to become a gift to another or to many others, right? If we're speaking in a specific sexual sense, you can only do that 
holistically with one person. Uh, I mean, you could marry and a spouse die and marry another, but monogamy is the point of, of, of I'm getting at there. Um, you can only give yourself sexually in a holistic way to one person. But our sexuality is a kind of watermark on our humanity that shows us who we are and what we're called to. Marriage is paradigmatic. The self-gift of marriage that makes one a husband and a father or a wife and a mother is paradigmatic of loving divinely. Why? Because God has revealed himself both as love and as father. To imitate God, to love as God loves, means we're going to bear fruit. Marriage is not the only way to do that. It is the paradigmatic way to do that. It's the paradigm of that kind of love. But one, Jesus himself calls some people to remain unmarried. Why? For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And what is that kingdom? It's the heavenly marriage. The whole purpose of the earthly marriage is to point us to the heavenly marriage. And the heavenly marriage is the marriage of Christ and the church, where we participate eternally in the fertility of the Trinity, right? So life-givingness is part of God, and because we're made in the image of God, it's part of us. So in one way or another, my dear sister, you are called to be a wife and a mother. And because being a wife and a mother, either in the sense of marriage and family life, or in the sense of remaining unmarried for the sake of the kingdom, it requires the same disposition of self-sacrificial love. So, if one is afraid to be a mother or doesn't want to be a mother, that is not a sign, oh, therefore I should be a nun. Um, no, no, because to be a nun is also to be a mother in another way. So, regardless of what particular expression of your calling as a woman, whatever that block or f- is it a fear? I don't know. I don't want to speak into it because I, I, I simply don't know. But that's why I started by inviting you to bring that to the Lord because there may be some block in there that needs to be, I would even say, I think there is a block in there, uh, could come from any number of sources, but a block in there to living out one way or another your call to motherhood. But I want to affirm, devoting yourself to the arts and becoming a mother in that sense is a real calling, could be a very, very real and very spiritually fertile calling. So those those are my initial thoughts. I hope it's good food for thought. Mm. Wendy, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think um, there's something just beautiful about... Um, this experience of kind of feeling, oh, that that speaks to me. Like there could be an actual vocation of singlehood. I also love this line, what is the purpose for me as a woman? I think there has to be yeah. a purpose. Yeah, she's rooted in her body there, yeah, which is excellent. It is. It's really beautiful. So when you mentioned um, art is the language of the heart. Yeah. I think there's so much richness of a certain femininity that's drawn to hearts, that wants to care for hearts, that wants to acknowledge hearts. Um, that is 
a major thing that mothers do, biological mothers raising their children, is that awareness of and appreciation for their children's hearts and their wanting to make the space for their children's hearts. Um, so all of that is like, oh, she's like, she's right in there. Yeah, she's swimming in it. <laughs> um, so that's, that's so beautiful. It's almost like, oh, I, I see like so much grace is there in her discernment. And it's like something she's been trying to make sense of. And I'm, I'm thinking about um, just to, that there are examples from kind of Protestant heroes who have lived a single life. There's in 1 Corinthians where St. Paul is talking about that, you know, that a single woman can be anxious about the things of the Lord. And that isn't to say that you can only be single if you have like, like a outwardly, obviously, you know, missionary purpose to your singlehood. I don't think that that's the case. Um, but but there is just that acknowledgement that that is real, that there are gifts of being a single person, that the Lord can work through that, through your femininity, that it does bear fruit. So I think all of that is really beautiful. And I completely agree with you that um, there could be ways the Lord wants to like just clear up something in her heart about children, and we don't know where that would lead. I don't want saying that to say, and once you get that cleared up, you'll definitely want to get married and have children. Right, that, right. That's not what we're trying to imply, but just just that that ownership, that deeper ownership of uh, her feminine, from, I'm sorry, deeper ownership of her feminine being would just like set her all the more free to follow the Lord in whatever way he is calling her. I also was thinking of, and you might be thinking of it too, God is beauty. Yep, I was indeed. <laughs> I read your mind. Yep, you did. So tell, tell her about God is beauty. Yeah, uh, there is a retreat that John Paul II, before he became Pope, gave to artists. And I would urge you, urge you to go through this retreat. We publish it here at the Theology of the Body Institute. Uh, we got permission from the Vatican to translate it into English and have it published for the first time in English. Uh, the, it's called God is Beauty, a, ret a retreat on the gospel and art. And he says in there, we'll have a link for you, by the way, in the show notes to that book. Um, he says in there that the life of the artist, it's like creating a work of art is like a mother in labor pains delivering a child. He uses that very analogy um, to talk about where true art comes from. There is a labor. We, we kind of conceive the inspiration. Then we have to carry it. And then we have to give birth to it. And there are labor pains involved in that. So there, there's that link between motherhood and, and art, which I think you already intuit. Um, and I also recommend one other resource. We'll put a link to it in the show notes it's the, I believe it's the 25th anniversary this year of John Paul II's Letter to Artists. You will see, my dear sister, read that. It's a short read, John Paul II's Letter to Artists. You will have the link and it'll take you to the Vatican website where you can read it right online. That document will affirm deeply for you that giving your life to the arts can be a true, sacred, holy vocation in which you live the law of the gift, the law of the ecstasy, and become in that deep sense a spiritual mother through the gift of art. 
That is really, really possible. I'll say one final thing, and it's this. If we don't understand, this is the danger of putting too much of an emphasis on marriage and family life. Of course, we have to talk about that in God's plan. But when, when we don't also, in the same teaching, talk about celibacy for the kingdom, there's a real danger that we idolize marriage right? Marriage is an icon that's meant to point us to the ultimate marriage, which is the marriage of Christ and the church. When we don't hold the two together, those two vocations, marriage and celibacy for the kingdom, when we don't hold them together in their proper relationship, there's a real danger that we will turn the icon of marriage into an idol. Lord, please save us from that idolatry and redirect our yearning to the real marriage that we all desire, the ultimate marriage we desire. Wendy, you're a beautiful sacrament of that ultimate marriage, but you, we already know you, you and I were not that ultimate marriage. Uh, thank you, Lord, for preparing us for that ultimate marriage through our sacrament. But that's exactly what it is. It's preparation for the eternal marriage. Prepare us all, Lord, in our particular state in life and our particular calling to be the indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift we are meant to be, and I just stole your line. That's when right. We, Let's all just become what we are. Let's do that. Okay. Amen. <laughs> Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.